Villas Grace Church. Building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know Him, to grow in Him, to go with Him. I uh, count it a great privilege to speak for you, to you this morning. We are in the middle of a sermon series on 1 Timothy, as you see on the screen, Sound Doctrine and the Church. The two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and the one to Titus are often grouped together and called the pastoral epistles, with the idea in mind that these were two young protégés of Paul's who who needed instruction about conduct in the church and, and so forth. And so we come today about a very important aspect of the local church, which is leadership in the church. There are a lot of leaders in this world of different kinds. Uh, Let me see if you can pick out any of these. Anybody see anybody you recognize? Who's that? I can't hear you. What? Kennedy. President Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. Yes, John Fitzgerald Kennedy on the lower left. Adolf Hitler in the middle, Churchill in, in the middle, 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 and some others you may or may not recognize. The one on the far left, upper left, is General George S. Patton, great military general in World War II. Upper right is uh, Lee Iacocca, who is credited with single-handedly rescuing uh, Chrysler Corporation, with the, especially with the invention innovation of the minivan in the mid-80s. Well, there are lots of leaders, and, uh, you know, sometimes they do good things, sometimes not so good. I happen to be a Cincinnati Reds fan, and I remember back in the early 90s, the uh, principal owner at the time was a, a lady named Marge Schott, and she, she made the statement somewhere along the line that Adolf Hitler did a lot of good things for Germany, and boy, did she get a lot of flack for that, you know. But the reality of history is he did do a lot of good things for Germany. Uh, You know, they'd come out of World War II and defeated people, and everything was collapsed, and he rebuilt their economy and their economy. But the thing is, is that most of the world didn't pay attention, and he rebuilt the economy by building a great war machine by which he hoped to conquer the world. And, of course, he was seriously uh, Satan's principal... uh, agent in trying to destroy Israel itself by the persecution and and death of Jews. So leaders in the world have all kinds of attributes, good, bad, in between. Uh, Hitler, some people call Hitler crazy. I don't think he's crazy, he's just very evil. And so there are a lot of things that we account for leadership. And these guys are considered movers and shakers. They get things done, but sometimes the things they get done aren't really all that great. So we have to consider that. Now, when we come to the church... In the modern church age, we have all kinds of different leaders. We can put that screen up there. When I was growing up, most of the churches I was familiar with, not only in the Grace Brethren Fellowship but others, had all kinds of different offices. They might have had a moderator. They might have had a treasurer, a Sunday school superintendent, uh, all kinds of things. You see some of those things. In addition to pastors, that ushers, children's ministry workers, now, none of those are necessarily wrong in, the, in and of themselves, but they're not in the Bible per se. They're just, they're not uh, anti-scriptural, but they're off-scriptural. They're not in the Bible. What can be wrong is the reason for 
selecting leaders in the church. Uh, oftentimes in our American churches, it was done by popular vote, congregational rule. Like everybody has a vote, just like our so-called democracy, and they would elect people based on that. Sometimes, for instance, they would uh, ask a CPA to be the treasurer or a banker to be a treasurer because they're familiar with, with numbers and so forth without any regard to his spiritual qualifications or any kind of demeanor or behavior on his part. It just made sense. Or somebody would be on the board of uh, trustees or a board of uh, property management because he's a plumber or electrician. So it wasn't always for the right reasons that they got chosen. However, when it comes to those offices that are explicitly mentioned in the, in the Bible, there's really only two. One is elder, and the other is deacon. And we're going to look at that office of elder today. Next week, my brother Greg will be preaching on the office of the deacon. Um, there was no hierarchy of, of bishops or archbishops or cardinals or any other kind of format. Uh, they, in fact, the, the apostle John, who was the youngest of the 12 and was the last one to die, when he wrote his three letters, he simply called himself the elder. He didn't attach to his name any special significance beyond that. So if you add other offices, it then is the responsibility of the leadership to put those people in place, and we'll, we'll see that next week. So my message this morning is going to be that about the leadership in the church, that is elders. And we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, along the way, I'm going to throw in a little bit of the original text and some of the Greek words, and I want to tell you, uh, that's not to show off. I, like the fellow said, I know a little Greek. He runs a restaurant downtown. But, but I, have, I have found that sometimes knowing the origin of words helps us to remember them better. They, they, they kind of stick in your mind accordingly. So we're going to throw in a little bit of, of that as we, as we move on. So I just want you to know I'm not trying to show off my language. So I'm going to start first before we get into the text by looking at the two principal words that are used to describe elders. The first one is the word presbyteros. Presbyteros simply means elder. It applies to age and hopefully maturity and so forth, although it's not, it goes beyond age because we all know some guys that are very mature and, and uh, in their 20s, and we also know some very foolish guys that are in their 50s or 60s. So it's, it's more than that. It's the most common word that the New Testament church would have understood because it was a word that was applied to the leadership of Israel as well. The elder, in the Gospels, you see it over and over again, the elders of Israel. So they would know that word. Some of you are familiar with this word because uh, you, like me, have been diagnosed with age-related farsightedness, meaning you can't read things that are small print. The, the term is presopia, presbyopia, which simply means old eyes, old eyes. So presbyteros is the first word. The second word is episkopos, which is, basically means overseer. In some translations, it's translated bishop. Uh, but it's actually the same office because if you look in Titus chapter 1, when Paul writes to Timothy, he uses those words interchangeably. So it's not two offices, it's one. Presbyteros elder or overseer. And then there's a few other words that are used not so frequently, and we'll put those up on the screen for you. Uh, one is rulers. You see the verses for that. Another one is leaders. Obey the leaders that are over you. And then the word pastor slash shepherd. There's only one time in the English Bible that the word pastor occurs, and that's in Ephesians chapter 4. 
And it, some translations, like the ESV, actually translates as shepherd. That's what it is. So when you think of a pastor, it's, it's more of a, a function of the elders, not a separate office. I, I, I appreciate being called a pastor. I mean, I, I, I've been given the responsibility in times past and so forth to shepherd people. In fact, the verbal form of the word uh, to shepherd is what Peter writes about to the elders. He says, shepherd the people. The shepherd feeds and protects his flock. And that's what we're, we're about. So pastor is not really an office as much as it is a part of what being an elder is about. So let's get into the text. We'll read the text for you first of all. We put that up on the screen. First uh, Timothy 3 verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, but, but, must, but man, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So let's go back then to that first verse. We'll take it verse by verse, and we're going to find that in this, uh, in this context that there's going to be 15 essential uh, aspects of an elder's life, and we must um, understand those. So now, when I say 15, don't get panicky. We're not going to be here all day. Uh, some of them are pretty much self-explanatory, but we're going to stop and take a moment on a couple of them that I think are very important. So verse number one says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And I ask the question, why would Paul start with that? Why would he start with that? Well, I think I have the answer. I think it's because the kind of man that we want to be an elder is not always going to be the guy seeking to grab a hold of everything. Sure, we want people that have ideas and, and are good leaders, but we don't want people who grasp onto power. A lot of people ascribe to leadership for the wrong reasons, wrong motivation. And sometimes the guys that need to be encouraged are the ones that will say, well, you know, I'm nothing, I, I, you know, so forth. So I, I, I put up some verses from Jesus. He told his disciples that you're going to lead, but you're not going to be like the Gentiles lead. So let's put those up on the screen if we can. Matthew 20, verse 25. I don't know if you can read that. It's kind of tiny, but it says, Jesus called, called them to him, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, obviously, Jesus deserved the all honor and glory, and he could come to earth and say, everybody bow down and worship me. But he came for the express purpose of giving his life on the cross to pay for our sins. He'll come back someday, and then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But when he came the first time, it was as a servant as one who gives freely of himself. And, and his disciples were told that they should do the same. Earlier in that same context, in verse 16, he says, so the last will be first and the first last. 
So even in the church, there have been those who misuse their power, their influence, their position, and we need to be cautious about that. In John's third letter to a friend and a brother named Gaius, he commends a brother named Demetrius, who was doing well, but he warns of a man named Diotrephes, who John says desires to be first among them. He wouldn't even accept John's letters. He wouldn't accept the people that John sent to him. He, he rejected them and threw them out of the church. We have had, even from the beginning of the church, church leaders who did wrong things, who got so full of themselves they almost became cult leaders. And you see that in any number of examples that you, you can quote during this, the years. So I think that Paul starts with his comment about seeking eldership to be a good thing, but he's encouraging men, perhaps humble servants of God, that it's okay to be servants of God. It's okay to aspire to be a leader. It's a good thing, and it is something desirable. Now, there has, um, there has been some people who question eldership um, as such, because like I said, in our American democracy, we think everybody has a vote, everybody has a say, let's vote in my friend, and so forth. I've been here 31 and a half years, and before I came here, I was in a church in Virginia for five years and uh, as an associate pastor. And um, when I first got there, the, the, the district pastors had been encouraged to teach on eldership. The idea of elders, it goes back to centuries before, but we had come around and done things kind of the modern way. And so they were trying to encourage us to get back to the eldership. And I know it, it created a stir in that church because some people didn't like that idea. They would suggest, well, you are trying to make some people, elevate some people as being more important than the rest of us, and that's not good. And you, you say that we have elders, they have to fit these qualifications, and, and I think that's, that's making uh, divisions or something. And my, my response to that, and your point is, because wouldn't you want to say that you want your leaders to be all that they can be in Christ? Um, you know, you want them to be. Now, I would say this, that I would desire that every man in the church aspires to these characteristics. Uh, naturally, you can't have them all on the elder board at one time, but you can rotate. Uh, in that particular church, they had an official board. And this church had an official board before I came. Just before I came, it switched to an eldership kind of government. And that official board in that particular church, if everybody showed up to the meeting, there'd be 40 people in there. It was a church of 300, so it's a sizable church, but still 40 people, that's a lot to try to discuss things. But, but when this church switched to eldership, there were some people that left the church because they were no longer qualified to be elders in this church, so they left. And that was prior to my arrival as well. But the point is, is every man needs to aspire to this. In fact, for years I used a book that, that discusses these things called A Measure of a Man by a professor from Dallas Seminary called, uh, named Gene Guest. It's the idea that every man should aspire to this. And I would love to see every one of our men qualified to be a leader in this church, uh, maybe swap off and take turns for that matter. So let's get into, the, let's get into the, uh, these 15 qualifications that that I see as needful. 15 essential characteristics of an elder. Uh, the, the first one, this is just verse 2. We'll put up verse 2. We're just going to cover these. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. First of all, above reproach. Don't hear above reproach as if it was perfection. There's only been one 
person who walked this earth that was without sin. So you're not going to find a perfect elder any more than a perfect church. I've often told people, if you ever go somewhere and find a perfect church, don't attend there because it won't be perfect anymore. So you'll, you'll never find it. But above reproach really means you can't easily accuse them. It literally comes, idea of not laid hold of, and I saw it translated as, it really means not arrested, okay? They don't have a charge against them that could be arrestable. And you might say, well, that's, that should be logical. A leader in the church shouldn't have a, you know, should be able to be thrown in jail. Well, if you read the news and some of the comments of, of various pastors and church leaders that did do something that deserving arrest, you'll see that that's not necessarily uh, a given, okay? So a pastor should be an elder, we'll say that interchangeably, should be above reproach. That is, if he's confronted with a sin, he acknowledges that and moves on. Now, the second point there, uh, the husband and one wife. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this because I think it's important. Husband and one wife. Now, some people have tried to translate that in different ways. They've rendered it a faithful spouse, a faithful spouse. Now, why do they do that? Well, it's not even really a translation. There's no Greek scholar in the world that could ever translate the phrase a faithful spouse. Why did they do it? Because that allows for women elders. Uh, you know, women can be faithful spouses, right? Uh, also, it also has gone, some groups have gone to homosexual elders because homosexuals can be faithful in their own way. But it does not say that. In fact, the very, the very Greek words that are, uh, that are translated there is the first the word andre, or from its root and air, which means a male. A male. There's another Greek word, anthropos, which we see in anthropology and so forth, is a more general word for mankind and can include man or woman. But this is specifically a word that's a male. And when using conjunction with a woman, it's often translated husband, okay? So that's one word. Uh, uh, androgen is a male hormone. That's where we get that word. The other word, husband of one, wife, the Greek word for woman is gune. Now, men don't make any comments about women being gune, but that's, that's the word. It's a word we get from which we get the word gynecology, which is the study of women, women's functions, okay? So it's specifically says a male and a female, okay? Husband of one wife is a man who is obviously male. In this day and age, that's not obvious anymore, but, uh, but that's what an elder must be. Now, before you get all shook up, ladies, um, a lot of people have rejected the Bible because it doesn't fit our contemporary roles in society. Uh, if you have a problem with male leadership in, in the church or male leadership in the home, take that up with the Lord, please. I mean, I, that's what the Bible says. And if you don't agree with that, you'll have to decide when and, when and where you want to sit down and write your own Bible, because that's where it is. Uh, Pastor Matt did accurately portrayed last week how uh, Paul says it's the order of creation. Man, Adam was created first, and then Eve has to be a, a partner with him, a complement to him. Uh, we do believe women have a complementary aspect to that. When I counsel uh, couples about marriage and so forth, I point out, of course, Ephesians 5 talks about the role of a husband being the head of his wife, and she needs to submit to his authority. Uh, and then he, which is a big thing. That's why I tell young 
young people that are getting married, be careful who you choose to marry because you have to, uh, you have to submit to his authority in the home. I point out a couple of things. First of all, it does not say all women submit to all men. It doesn't say that at all. It says wives to your husband as, as under Christ, the head of the church. Uh, it is a willing thing. It doesn't say husbands force your wives into submission. Not, it's not the husband's role to do that. Wives are supposed to willingly submit to his authority in that regard. Um, and it furthermore states that, that it's difficult. If, if women were naturally inferior to men, we all know couples where the wife is smarter and more capable than the husband. Uh, maybe you'd have a hard time finding a, a, a case that's not true. But um, if women were naturally inferior, that they weren't as smart or not as this or that, they are inferior in some ways. Typically, they're not as strong as men uh, and not as tall and whatever. But if they were naturally inferior, you wouldn't have to tell women to submit to the authority of your husband because they would just tag along behind. And in some cultures, maybe that's what they do. But the Bible elsewhere talks about the marriage of being a partnership and women are just as capable. So it isn't an issue of capability. It's a matter of order and creation and a matter of of rank and file. I, I don't think a sergeant in the army necessarily thinks that he's stupider or dumber than the lieutenant. He just has to obey the chain of command. So um, anyway, that's, that's, that's the point there. So must be a man. Sorry, ladies, we have other functions. Uh, Pastor Matt talked about that in terms of teaching and so forth. We teach others. Secondly, uh, second question then I have, must he be married? It says we be the husband of one wife. Well, I don't know that you can absolutely say he has to be married any more than he has to have kids. But I think it's probably advisable because that's a good way of telling how well he relates with people and deals with problems and so forth. So it, it's probably advisable, but, but certainly in some cases it may be a single man could be an elder. Uh, you have to take that on a case-by-case thing. Third thing is obviously it's not polygamous. In the, in the Roman culture of the day, men all, almost always had more than one sexual partner, if it will. They might have had one wife, but they also had a mistress on the side, or even in pagan practices in the temple, they had uh, sexual relationships and so forth. So obviously, husband of one wife means only one, only one wife, okay? Uh, a fourth thing is, does it allow for divorce? Uh, when I was growing up, if, if a pastor, you know, at that time, the only elder they thought of in the church was the pastor himself. If he got divorced, that was the end of his ministry. Because a total failure of a marriage must be a total failure of a ministry. And I, I held that view for a long, long time. I come to realize, though, that maybe there are some exceptions of that. And that has to, again, be taken on a case-by-case basis. For instance, uh, I, I could understand where a, a guy got married at 18 and divorced at 19, and now he's 35, and it's a totally different situation. Maybe he wasn't even saved when he... Uh, was married originally. So it it's certainly is a disqualifier in terms of immediate uh, aspects of things. If he got divorced a year ago, you wouldn't want to put him in office necessarily uh, right away. Uh, so I, think, I don't think God puts people on the shelves indefinitely. He forgives all sin, and maybe there's an avenue for even a divorcee. The last point is, uh, what about a, a widowed man and he gets remarried. Under normal circumstances, 
uh, the marriage bond is broken when, you, when one of the spouses dies, and so you're free to remarry. But there have been a lot of people, and I had a professor in seminary that felt this way, that if an elder's wife died, he should never get remarried. Otherwise, he'd be disqualified. And that was actually a view of the early church in some cases uh, in the first two or three centuries. I, I think they felt like they should be like Paul, that Paul apparently seemed to have been married at one time, but his wife must have died. And, and he said, remain single because you're free to do more ministry and so forth. So that may have been part of the factor that they built into that, so that uh, a, a widowed person should not be, uh, who got remarried should not be an elder. So anyhow, but keep in mind, it, it, is, it is restricted to males, men, and uh, so forth. All right, let's move on. We're just going to go quickly through the next three, uh, next four. Sober-minded. It's a word that means also temperate. The, the, when I put it in parentheses, Nick said, sober-minded is what the ESV says, in the New American Standard says temperate. It basically means, uh, it comes from the idea of being free from wine, but it's also temperate in all aspects. Uh, that is not just <clears throat> the fact of being able to control your uh, alcohol, but also in your attitude and your, your um, reactions to things, to be temperate. Uh, next, next point, self-control, also translated prudent. Uh, it's a Greek word, sophron, which means of a sound mind, sensible. It, you would naturally think that you would like to have your uh, elders to be of a sound mind, right? I, uh, not off the deep end, not crazy, as it were. So, so that, that just is a given as well. Uh, next word is respectable. Cosmios. Uh, Cosmios. Well-ordered. His life is well-ordered. He has things under control. It's the same word from which we get our word cosmos. That is the organization of the planets and the universe and so forth. Also, ladies, cosmetics. Somebody once said that cosmetics has the same thing to do with cosmos. It's making order out of chaos. Okay, uh, So that's, that's where we get that word. Okay, cosmos. He's respectable. He's well-ordered. Uh, next one is hospitable. Literally, it's the word phileo and xenos, which is a love of strangers. Now, when we think of hospitality, we sometimes think, well, I'm going to have you over for dinner and, or for cake and coffee. And then two weeks later, you'll have me over and we'll have to just exchange our hospitality. But in, the, in their thinking, in their culture, it was the love of, of absolute strangers, uh, not just people that you're going to get something back in return. It was very important, especially in the, in the early church, because when... People like Paul and other missionaries went out. They, they couldn't just stop in at the Holiday Inn, you know, or, or the Best Western or something. They had to stay some places. And a lot of times the so-called inns were not a very good place to be around. So a lot of times they relied upon other Christians in various places to take them in. And they might not even know these people, but they took them in and, and uh, worked with them. So phileo, love, xenos is a stranger. Being hospitable, even to people who don't know. Now, I have a caveat on that. That doesn't mean you have to take every bum off the street and bring them into your home. That could be unsafe for you, and it's also not necessarily helping them. Uh, I think we, I, I, I struggle with not being callous toward people I see on the street and asking for handouts. But at the same time, I know that to really help those people, you have to get involved in their life. You can't just hand them money. That's, that may only feed their bad habit. Um, 
but we do need to love strangers, that is, people who may not be exactly like we are, we may not even know them. So let's go to verse 3. Oh, no, we didn't get to verse 3. Let's go to, to uh, able to teach. Okay, didaskados. Um, able to teach. First thing we think of when we talk about an elder being able to teach, we think of somebody who's a good orator, a good teacher. Well, that's maybe part of it, but it's not the whole of it. Uh, not every pastor or elder is going to be a really excellent public speaker. But in my mind, I think what it says able to teach is that he has a life that models Christ, that he has the platform, the forum by which he teaches others. And that teaching might not be from a, from a pulpit. It might be from everyday life, from things he can help people with. An elder should be the kind of person, just like um, in the Old Testament, uh, Israel was told that the fathers to teach their sons and daughters, whether you're at home, lying down, sitting up, walking around, whatever you do in life, it's a good model. To be able to teach somebody else requires somebody to be a good model. Jesus spent three and a half years of his own life modeling what he wanted his disciples to be. They saw him 24-7. They just didn't see him when you all look good behind the pulpit and say all the right things. They saw what he lived like. They saw... They saw his character. They even asked him things like, teach us to pray. We've seen you pray. Uh, so able to teach doesn't necessarily mean fluent words. Even Paul admitted that his letters were powerful, but his presence was weak. He didn't impress people when he saw them physically in, in person. So an elder should be able to teach. And even in his writings, he makes a distinction. He says that the church should take care of its elders, especially those who teach, meaning there is a distinction there. There may be some elders, uh, there may be some of you men who, who don't feel like you'd ever be able to get up on platform and actually speak a sermon. I felt that way when I was going through Bible college, but, but you never know what you can do until you let God work in your life. But able to teach is more about his character, I think. All right, verse 3 then. Uh, not, a, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Uh, first of all, not a drunkard. Uh, again, may is the negative word for paroinus. Uh, it means not alongside of wine, basically. Now, when I was, when I was first getting into the ministry, and our examiners, they would specifically ask you do, you, do you abstain from alcohol? And a lot of us more conservative groups would think a, a believer should never drink at all. And I think it's foolish for conservative Christians to think that the Bible teaches that it's against the rules, so to speak, to drink alcohol at all. But it certainly condemns drunkenness. And it certainly can, it warns about the problems of alcohol and so forth. And I would suggest that, that uh, drunkenness, uh, if, if you feel like you have... Now, I, I don't happen to drink, okay? Some of you may drink alcohol. But uh, if, if you feel like there's something under control in your life, if you feel you can't get through the day without a drink then maybe you have an issue, okay? Or if you feel like, I, I'm depressed, so i got to have a drink. That's not a good crutch, okay? I, that's just what way I feel about that. But um, there are a lot of addictions, though, not just wine. So we've got to keep that in check. Okay. So then, second one was not violent. And it's literally a word that means not a striker. Uh, not a striker. Now, I think, that's, I think it logically follows the drunkenness. You know, you, you know a lot of guys, when they have a little too much to drink, they get rather uh, 
yeah, rude, rowdy, they get, they get into fights, you know. Uh, you always hear about these so-called celebrities, sports guys getting in a brawl at a bar at 3 in the morning. Well, maybe it shouldn't be there in the first place at 3 in the morning, but, but uh, that kind of goes with this. Obviously, you would think, well, why would, it, why would you think an elder would be a striker? Well, maybe because he's also a, a guy that's a drunk. You don't want him doing that either. Uh, next one, gentle. This is the contrast to that. He's gentle. Uh, it's another way of translating it, suitable, mild, equitable. Uh, Paul himself appealed to the people at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10. 1, he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Uh, the meekness and gentleness of Christ, we are to be more Christ-like. And the Bible says that he said of himself, I'm meek and lowly and humble of spirit. Now, don't confuse meekness with weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Jesus was a strong person, strong mentally, strong spiritually, uh, strong socially, in all aspects. He was a strong person. But I always put meekness in terms of strength under control. And I think of one of my prime examples is Hoss Cartwright of the Benenza show. Uh, he, he was portrayed as this big hulk of a man, but he was a gentle giant. You know, he was very gentle. He didn't use his strength when, unless it was really called for the, to protect somebody else more than himself. So an elder should be, should be meek, should be gentle. Uh, another point, not quarrelsome, not quarrelsome. Uh, when you see an A in front of a word in English or in Greek, it, it often means without or against. Like, for instance, uh, the Greek word for God is theos. And so uh, a person who believes in God is a theist. A person who doesn't believe in God is an atheist or an atheist. Okay, so it's without fighting. He doesn't, he doesn't contend with people all the time. We are supposed to be contend for the faith, but not be contentious. Has anybody ever asked you or accused you of being contentious? You're contentious. How do you answer that? No, I'm not. No. But, but sometimes people get contentious when they're supposed to be contending for the faith. We're not supposed to be arguing with everybody on Facebook about every little thing we, we disagree with, okay? Sometimes we don't accomplish, we don't accomplish anything with that anyways, so... But we're not quarrelsome, without fighting. We're not always, uh, in fact, James used the same word, and he says you fight and quarrel amongst yourselves uh, because you're not under the control of the Spirit. Another point, part 12, we're, we're getting down there. It says, not a lover of money. Again, ah is in front of that, means without. Phileo, love, argos, Argos really is silver, not, a, not materialistic. An elder should not be one who's just doing it for the money. Uh, Jesus himself talked about the fact that uh, there are some shepherds that were hirelings. They, they didn't really care for the sheep themselves. They weren't their sheep. They just did it because they're getting paid. And when trouble comes, they flee. They take off. An elder worth his salt is going to truly care for his people regardless of the money involved and so forth. And that's... Uh, that's difficult. And again, Paul did say we should support our elders because they, uh, they, uh, they have a lot on them and they, and they need to be free to study and preach and so forth. Not a lover of money. By the way, we're going to get to a verse in, in Timothy uh, chapter 6. Most misquoted verse from the Bible. 
People always say, money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, it's, money itself is just an exchange of your time. You, you give up your time, your employer pays you money, exchange for that time. That's not the problem. It's if you're greedy and wanting more and more money, that's all. Okay, moving on really quick. Um, Verses 4 and 5, uh, it says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, let's back up and just consider this in terms of pastors, because this is the way this particular, these two verses have particularly been a, a, a stressful thing on pastors and their families. Because there was always a time where people put a lot more on the pastor's kids than they should have. Uh, you know, why are you doing that? You're the pastor's kid or whatever else they can choose them of. And so there's a lot of stress put on that. Uh, pastors sometimes put the stress on their kids themselves. And they're afraid they're going to lose their job if, they, if their kids act up. Kids are going to be kids. This isn't a test of the child. This is a test of the parent. How does he respond to their misbehavior? Is he... Is he come down with a heavy fist and just is a tyrant about it and just angry about what their kids are doing? Look what you're doing. You're embarrassing me. Or on the other hand, is he permissive? He just lets his kids run wild. This is a test of how the elder is going to deal with other people. If he can't deal with his own family, how is he going to deal with other people's problems? So don't put that on the pastor's kids or make it feel like, somehow their, their livelihood is threatened because the kids might misbehave at times. Uh, my kids were not perfect, and I dealt with them as best I could, but notice it says, with all dignity. Uh, I, never tried to, I never tried to call my kids down in front of other people. I would pull them aside and talk to them, even when they were little. I would make it a point of taking them aside and saying, you know what you did, here's what you did. And I did believe in spanking young children. I don't you get to an age where that doesn't make much sense anymore. But you got to get their attention. Uh, and anyways, I would never do that or try not to ever do that in front of other people. And it was really cringeworthy when other people tried to do that uh, to a pastor and his kids. I never realized how big a fishbowl that pastors and their kids live in until I, I, I focused on the family. I used to send out these cassette tapes about different issues in the church. And one of them was about PKs. And not, it wasn't just teenagers that felt the pressure. It was even young children, three and four or five years old that they interviewed, that felt like they were put on a, a spotlight. And that was just too harsh. And, and just see how the pastor or the elder deals with his children. That's the test, not the kids themselves. How do they deal with their kids? Okay, going on. Um, very simply, he says he must, be, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Not a recent convert. Literally, it's the word uh, neophyte, not a neophyte. Uh, not somewhat, we get our, our actual English word from that. The, the idea is, is that if you elevate somebody too quickly, they can get full of themselves. And I've seen that happen any number of times with people that are promoted um, you know, like when I was in Bible college, I used to ask the guy that used to belong to a gang to get up and give his testimony, or the guy that used to be a drug addict to give up his testimony. Poor little old me, I got saved when I was in Sunday school and <laughs> at the age of seven. I didn't have that kind of glorious testimony. But some of these people 
got a little bit too full of themselves because they were always prated around, and that's not good. So an elder should not be a recent convert. Now, how, how recent does that mean? I don't know. I'm amazed at how quickly Paul was able to establish elders and told Timothy and Titus to do the same. I think people were a lot more mature back in their day than ours. Uh, by the time you're 18, you're already a working man and having, uh, you know, a trade and so forth, and you're more, more alert. But anyway, okay, uh, and the last point, the last of the thing. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. You know, it's one thing to come in here at church and look good, all polished and spit and shine and, and talking well, and let's, we love Jesus and blah, blah, blah. What about out there? You know, what does the world think of you, those outside? Now, they may not like everything you say, but they should respect you for that. They should respect for your stance. You should have the kind of demeanor and person. You're not looking down your nose at them because they're doing this or that or the other, that they'd like you as a person. Now, that may not be across the board. Paul wrote in Romans, as much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. They may not always be at peace with you, and they, they may resent you because you do have a good life and a good standard and morals and so forth. But it shouldn't be because you're standing on a pedestal looking down at them and making them feel inferior. Uh, we, we want to reach those people. We don't necessarily agree with everything they do, but we want to reach people for Jesus Christ. And as I often heard somebody say, when you go to talk to somebody about the Lord, it's not like you're up here and you're, you're trying to reach down to the scum of the earth or something. Somebody points, put it this way, Sharing the gospel with somebody is like one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And we found life and bread of life in Christ, and we want them to have that as well. So what do people think about you? And unfortunately, the thing that saddens me much about some of these scandals in the church is the fact that, or some of these phonies, these guys that seem obviously charlatans, just con men, they're not feeding the flock, they're fleecing the flock. And it, it, it sickens me because it gives people out there another excuse for not accepting my Savior. You know, that's why Christians are, you know, I don't have anything to do with it. Now, it's just an excuse because we can't, we can't fault Jesus for all the bad stuff other people do. But, but it is an excuse, and it gives them one more excuse for not changing so, godly leadership in the church is essential, but godly leadership in the church is also good. And I would challenge every man in this auditorium and all the people that come here normally uh, to aspire to that office. And I would love to see all of us have developed those character qualities and traits, because really they're just evidence of, of the Holy Spirit working in our life. They're a fruit of the Spirit that is working through our lives and making us all that we need to be. And I would encourage the women of this church as well to be those, as the scriptures talk about, to support their husbands, um, who partner with them in all aspects of life, who teach the older women, teach the younger woman. And that could be an older woman in the faith. It could be 25 teaching a 22-year-old uh, because they know more about the scriptures than that new, new believer does. So just consider that as we, as we looked at to... Um, to you for more leadership and for as we move forward and have others come alongside and, and seek to do uh, the work of an overseer, an elder. And uh, we, we trust that you will. Uh, Joe, come on up. I forgot to signal to you. 
I'll tell you what, why don't we just, why don't we just key in the music, I'll just pray and we'll do Smith. I, I don't get a chance to talk very long, often, so I get long-winded when I do. So, uh, yeah, just pray, pray for one another, pray for the encouragement of our saints and, and so forth. We, I trust you'll have a good Fourth of July tomorrow and celebrate the freedoms we do have. Pray for our country, it desperately needs it. And uh, let's just stand and dismiss in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, the Word of God, who, which teaches us what we ought to be in Christ. And I do pray for men to uh, aspire to the godly traits that you want for elders, but every man should, should have these evidences in their life. We thank you for it. We just pray that you'll uh, be with the Nemars as they travel this afternoon to uh, Indiana, uh, catch their flight, and we just thank you for the love we have in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email, connect at villasgrace.com.